<laughs> and most of my videos are at least an hour or more long. And I learned that it's a good idea maybe uh, so you don't lose people right away to do time markers in a video. So check out that description box underneath the video here on YouTube and look to see what the time markers are. You may not want to sit through certain parts of the video so you can go immediately to a time marker that is telling you what's there at that point in the video. And that may speed up the process for you if you don't want to sit for an hour through everything. If you want to just get to the point, get those time markers and go right to the parts of the video you want to actually see and see them quickly. Uh, and I found that's worked very effectively uh, for a lot of my viewers over this last couple of years we've been doing this. And I wish I would have known that years ago. All right, now let's just take a, a clear example of what I'm talking about with these time markers. Okay, a video we did called The Christian Worldview According to the Bible Alone, which is utterly rejected by most of the world. Here we see the time markers which are located not only in the description text right underneath the, the video, but then also down in the comment section. I always put the time marker information down in the comment section as well. Usually I pin that comment at the top so people can see where they can click to certain parts of the video and go directly to those topics immediately. Okay, now let's take a look at this one now, just as an example. Here we see at the 1314 mark, if you want to just jump there to see what that talks about, it says Rob begins his presentation by sharing comments from Abraham Kuyper, and you have a link there, about the distinction between those who have been regenerated and those who are not. You click on that marker with your, your mouse, then you'll go right to this segment of that video. He begins by saying, human beings would find differences between themselves, and perhaps differences would be ultimately lead perhaps to some kind of advancement in the unity of truth. Okay, you just saw that immediately when you click on the time marker. Now let's take another example at the 1921 mark about John 3, 3 through 4. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You click on that and you go immediately to this clip. Jesus answered in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, to the question, how can one be born again in that pericope of the scripture by saying this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, another example. Time marker 2841, the great divide, natural man versus spiritual man. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So I call it the great divide. It's the difference between what the Bible calls the natural man and what the Bible calls the spiritual man. Listen to these words by the Apostle Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in his letter to the Corinthians, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now listen to this. This is important. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Okay, one more example to show you how this all works. 4113 in the time marker. If you click on this, the following clip is what you'll immediately see. And he says, now the deeds of the flesh, these natural impulses are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, worshiping a false god or anything you put in the place of the one true God, sorcery, messing around with satanic kinds of movies, shows, board games, videos, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and then he throws in, and things like these. Okay? He gives a laundry list of the kinds of things that most Christians would read and say, Well, I'm not I'm not there. Women. Jealousy, strife, outbursts of anger. Factions, sensuality, it doesn't sound like anybody can go to heaven. I mean, everybody's kind of done this or been a part of this. That's not the apostle's point. His point is, I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things, and what he means by practice such things is that there is no evident repentance, there's no evident conviction, there's no evident change in their behavior. They are going along to get along. They haven't stood against it in their own hearts, let alone the culture. And he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here you have a clear example of how the time markers can not only give you a summary of what's contained in the entire video itself without you actually having to spend the time to watch the entire video. It'll also hone you in on the spots you are most interested in hearing about during the time you have available. So check out those time markers before you begin a video, which may save you a lot of time and also give you a good idea what the whole video is about. With that... We'll get into our programming. Thank you. If you would like our free newsletters on various religious topics, just send us an email at cdebater at aol.com and free newsletters will be sent to you by mail. Just provide your postal address in your email. The following are samples of some of the newsletters we have available. Does God Believe in Atheists? Part 1. Seventh-day Adventism, True or False? The Agony of Deceit. The Origins of Muhammad's Religion. Spiritual Warfare. Are Psychic Mediums Communicating with Ghosts, 
or demonic spirits. Testimony to the Eternal Godhead, the Trinity. From Tradition to Truth, a Priest's Story. An Evaluation of the Oneness Pentecostal Movement. Mormonism, Counterfeit Christianity. Turn or Burn. Jehovah's Witnesses, Deceived Deceivers. Links to these newsletters can also be found at our website, www.biblequery.org. Once on the homepage, simply click on the menu icon at the upper left-hand corner. Then click on the Newsletters button. Feel free to print them out. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Greetings and welcome once again to our program. This is Christian Answers, and I'm your host, Larry Wessels, Director of Christian Answers. And I want to thank you for being with us today. Today we have a very special series we're getting ready to do with uh, two of my very special guests. One of them uh, people are very familiar with, good old Rob Zins here. Rob, you've been on, I think, over 100 of our videos already. You're a glutton for punishment. <laughs> And of course, many of you, since you're, if you're familiar with our, our show, of course, new viewers wouldn't be, but uh, most people know that, Rob, uh, you have written this book, Romanism, The Relentless Roman Catholic Assault on the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what can you say about this book for us? Well, I can say that this book uh, is highly recommended by me because I'm the author, Okay. <laughs> But other than that, I think anybody who wants to get an idea of the essence of the Roman Catholic religion uh, from top to bottom uh, would be uh, interested in reading a book of this nature. I wrote it in response to a Roman Catholic writer who was at the time challenging what he called fundamentalist Bible thumpers and things mm -hmm. like that. And I said, well, has anybody answered him? And nobody had at the time, so... I decided to just pick up pen and paper and have at it. But I think it's a, it's a good book because it outlines and gives detail as well as fully footnoted uh, Catholic writers and authors in their way of thinking and their mm -hmm. religious system. So, mm -hmm. yeah, this would be the kind of thing you'd want to uh, take a Bible class through or have your Sunday school teacher use as a reference because it's basically an apologetic yeah, book. I know it's on Amazon.com. You can readily get your hands on that. Right. Also on your website. That's the website. You're w welcome to come. CWRC slash RZ dot ORG. Alright, let's try it again. CWRC dash RZ, not slash, dash RZ 
Dot org. Okay. And all it takes is one little digit one to mess up the slip whole of thing. the slash That's into right. a dash. Slip That's of all the we slash need. into the dash. Yeah. Hey, you're poetic, man. I like that. Yeah, my feet are long <laughs> fellows. <laughs> right. And this guy has a degree from Dallas Theological Seminary, by the way. Uh, what was that? D-Men and uh, Church History. THM. Yes, THM. Yeah. Okay. And you got another book here. What can you tell us about that? Well, Larry, you're familiar with this book. Um, I was pretty exercised over the idea that there are so many evangelical organizations that were actually trying to pull the Roman Catholic religion into the tent of Christianity and welcome them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you on, can't do on that. On the edge so, of apostasy, the yeah. evangelical romance with Rome. With Rome. Right. Now, just so our viewers know, I don't want to leave them in wondering who this guy is over here. <laughs> it's Tim Coffer. but And he's also, besides Rob, an ex-Roman Catholic. Do you know anything about this book called uh, Quite Contrary, A Biblical Reconsideration of the Apparitions? Of Mary. Can you tell uh, us a little bit about that book? Yes, there's the book right there. It's actually written by a man that's 30 years younger than I am right now. So, uh, yeah, so um, I, I became a believer in 1990, and uh, I, had, I converted out of Roman Catholicism. I translated from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. And uh, when I came out of Roman Catholicism, I was inspired in my study of the scriptures to go back to look at what I had learned as a Roman Catholic and compare it to what I was now learning in my study of the Scriptures. And that's not to say I had never opened the Bible when I was a Roman Catholic. I was a Roman Catholic for 24 years. <clears throat> but I had uh, joined a church that was studying verse by verse through uh, various books of the Bible, week in and week out, Tuesday nights, Sunday nights, Sunday mornings, Sunday school. And I was exposed for the first time to real verse-by-verse -verse expository preaching and deductive instruction. And when I encountered that, I realized that some of the things that I had believed as a Roman Catholic were false. <clears throat> and I went back to look at what I had studied as a Roman Catholic and learned as a Roman Catholic and compared it side-by-side -side with what the Scriptures were teaching. And one of the focal points in my devotion as a Roman Catholic was a devotion to the apparitions of Mary. And what was interesting, as a new believer, I was trying to explain to people what the apparitions of Mary were. <coughs> Excuse me. And I realized that uh, a lot of people, for some reason, thought that the apparitions of Mary were uh, when people look at a cinnamon bun and see they think they, think they see Mother Teresa in the cinnamon bun, or they... They, they think that if the sun hits a, a, a dirty window just the right way, they, they see a picture of Mary. And I thought, I don't think these people understand what an apparition of Mary is. An apparition of Mary is actually a visible appearance of something claiming to be Mary, the mother of Jesus, and interacting with people and giving instructions and teachings. Mm -hmm. And the most famous apparition of Mary at all of all was the one at Fatima, Portugal in 1917, where a vision of Mary, an appearance, an apparition of Mary, spoke to three sh uh, shepherd children in the hillside and had uh, significant instructions and met with them on a monthly basis. And the newspapers were filled with all the information about these apparitions are happening. And by uh, after six months, 70,000 people were showing up to watch the children interact with the apparition of Mary. The people couldn't see the the, the, the apparition of Mary, mm -hmm. but the children could. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized 
a couple things. And one was that when Protestants began to understand what I was talking about, about the appearance of something claiming to be Mary, their general uh, response was that, well, it's, it's, it's not from the Lord, therefore it's not really happening. And when I talked to Roman Catholics, they would say, well, look at all this evidence that it's actually happening. You know, the video, videotapes of actual children interacting with something claiming to be the vision of Mary. The, 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 you know, Mary didn't show up on film, but the children were clearly talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. And uh, various evidences of the miracles that happened, uh, the miracle of the sun, uh, what happened in Fatima, Portugal in, <clears throat> in October of 1917 was... Uh, allegedly the sun was made to come down to earth and 70,000 people thought the sun was going to crash down on them and burn them alive. So from the Roman Catholic perspective, there's so much evidence that these are actually actually happening that they conclude, well, it's really happening, therefore it must be from God. And I realized that there was a, a huge divide between the Protestant response, which was it's not from God and therefore it's not really happening, and the Catholic response is that it's really happening and therefore it's from God. And I realized that I need to get in the middle of that and say, it's really happening, and it's not from God, and therefore it's demonic. And so what I did with the uh, quite contrary was that I went back and I studied the messages that I had received, embraced and, and believed, the, the teachings of the apparition of Mary throughout the, the centuries, whether it's uh, uh, Lourdes, France, or La Salette, France, or Fatima, Portugal, uh, Guadalupe, Mexico, and I began to compare what the apparitions had been saying with what the gospel actually says. And one of the most uh, heartbreaking renditions of the gospel from the apparition of Mary was that uh, every time we sin, that's one more sin that gets placed on Jesus who continues to suffer for our sins. And that the more we sin, the more Jesus suffers, the more God is angry at us for our sins. And he's so angry that he would destroy us right now, and the only one standing between us and God and his wrath is Mary. And she says, I can't hold back his wrath much longer. And I can't imagine a more pathetic rendition of the gospel than the one the apparitions of Mary came teaching, which was, the more Jesus suffers, the angrier God gets at you. But the, the gospel of the scriptures is that because God has crushed Jesus Christ for our iniquities and punished him for our sins, we are now at peace with him through our Lord Jesus Christ because through Christ's death, the wrath of God has been satisfied and he is no longer angry Amen. at us, right? So, so the apparitions of Mary... We're teaching that the more we sin, the more God punishes Christ, the angrier he becomes. Mm-hmm. The scriptures say that the Lord's wrath has been satisfied because he was pleased to crush Christ for our iniquities. Mm-hmm. Those are two totally different gospels. Oh, and because they're two totally different gospels, and like you said from the Apostle Paul, if anyone, even an angel from heaven, should come preaching a gospel contrary to this, yes. let him be accursed. And I realized the apparitions of Mary do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and therefore they must be demonic. And so that was really the the intent of the book was to familiarize people with my personal story about coming out of Roman Catholicism, uh, my particular devotion to the apparitions of Mary as a Roman Catholic, 
And what I discovered after being born again, when I compared the teachings of the apparitions of Mary with the teachings of the scriptures, and I realized the teachings of the scriptures are saying one thing, and the apparitions are saying another. That's right. The apparitions are really happening. They're not from God. Therefore, they must be demonic. All right. That's right. So, with that said, and I'm with the authors of this book, I want to, and since they are intimately more knowledgeable on the subject than I am, I'm going to let Rob take over here to introduce us into this section of the book you'd like to talk about. Okay, thanks, Larry. In the previous video, we talked about the Roman Catholic religion having full control over the gathering and putting together of the text, the canon of the text, and from that they have full control over the interpretation of the text of Scripture, and from that they have full authority to add to the text of Scripture. And we summarize it by saying the Roman Catholic religion believes in sola ecclesia, that is the church alone for faith and practice. So if you want to understand Rome from the beginning, they are convinced that they gave us the word of God and that they have full control over the word of God and they can interpret the word of God and they only can interpret the word of God and they can also uh, add to the Word of God in any way that they seem fit. And we would throw in the idea that they don't rely upon the Word of God solely because it's sola ecclesia. They can add other sources of authority to the Word of God, such as the uh, magisterium, the plenary councils that meet, and also the infallibility of the Pope at Rome, and the tradition of the Roman Catholic religion. All this is to say that they are in the catbird seat when it comes to having full control over scripture and the teaching of scripture. This opens the door for them to have a system of salvation that they have put together. And uh, Patrick Madrid in his book, Answer Me This, is defending the system of salvation that the Roman Catholic religion has put into place and claims that it's through this system that one can uh, merit and qualify for eternal life. Now in this video, we're going to interact with Madrid and um, some of the points of this system. So if you can frame it in your mind, Christians believe that the word of God gave us the church. Roman Catholics believe that the church gave us the word of God. So there's no way that we can come together on this point because both of us believe diametrically opposite uh, opinions on the matter. So Larry, I'd like to start out with talking about this system and uh, uh, Tim will be able to chime in here quite a bit with us as we uh, move forward. But I want to talk first of all about the primary sacrament of the system, the primary sacrament of the Roman Catholic system of salvation is baptism. And I brought with me some citations that cannot be denied. They're fully illustrative of the Roman Catholic position on baptism. 
and they're taken from the New Catholic Catechism. And I want you to listen carefully to what Rome teaches on this whole matter of baptism. Now, I'm going to quote from the New Catholic Catechism, paragraph 1213, 1257, and 1250. Listen to these words because this is what Madrid is defending. And he claims that this is the teaching of the Bible. And we quote, Holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway to life in the Spirit and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church, and made sharers in her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through water and the word. Next paragraph. The Lord himself affirms that baptism is necessary for salvation. He also commands his disciples to proclaim the gospel to all nations and to baptize them. Baptism is necessary for salvation for those to whom the gospel has been proclaimed and who have had the possibility of asking for this sacrament. The church does not know of any means other than baptism that assures entry into eternal beatitude. This is why she takes care not to neglect the mission she has received from the Lord to see that all who can be baptized are reborn of water and spirit. God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, but he himself is not bound by his sacraments. Next paragraph. Born with a fallen nature, tainted by original sin, children also need of the new birth in baptism to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God, to which all men are called. The sheer gratuitousness of the grace of salvation is particularly manifest in infant baptism. The church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. In short, baptism means everything in Rome. Look at the words that they're using. It's the gateway to life in the Spirit. It's access to all the other sacraments. In baptism, we're freed from sin, reborn as sons of God, made members of Christ, incorporated into the church, and baptism is the sacrament of regeneration. The Lord himself affirms that baptism is necessary for salvation, necessary for salvation for those to whom the gospel has been proclaimed, the church does not know any other means other than baptism that ensures eternal beatitude. Born with a fallen nature tainted by original sin, children have needed the new birth in baptism to be freed from the power of darkness, brought into the realm of the children of God. The shared gratuitousness of grace of salvation is manifest in infant baptism. If you are a parent in the Roman Catholic religion, you would deny your child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were you not to have them baptized. I cannot think of anything more clear 
out of the Roman Catholic religion than this, that baptism does all this for those who undertake it in the Roman Catholic religion. Now, let me, let me explain to you when I say that the Roman Catholic religion will use scripture to defend their position on things, this is the passage that they go to. This is their go-to passage to say all of this about baptism. It's found in John chapter 3 when our Lord has a conversation with the man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews. This man had come to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So I'm going to repeat verse 5 in Jesus' answer. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It is taken for granted, it's an a priori before the fact assumption, that the water in John 3, 5, 3, 5 is a reference to baptism. It is strongly implied that this one passage closes the case and begins, the, begins and ends the defense for the baptism, not only of adults, but infants in the Roman Catholic religion. So, as Christians, we ask ourselves this. Is the water in John 3, 5 a reference to baptism? And if it is a reference to baptism, does the baptism that it references include all that Rome says it does? So it's a twofold question. And of course, there are fully three or four, maybe even five explanations that are suitable to Scripture to explain the water to which the Lord is referring to when he says you must be born of the water and the Spirit. Also, I might add that he's talking to Nicodemus, who's a ruler of the Pharisees, ruler of the Jews, and he chides him when Nicodemus seems to not comprehend exactly what the Lord is saying here. In verse 10, Jesus says to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? And you have to ask the question, what did Nicodemus not understand? Well, he didn't understand what Jesus was saying when he said you must be born of the water and the spirit. Obviously, you must be born again. Obviously, you must be born of the spirit. And you must be born again. Nicodemus didn't understand these things. So are we to believe that Nicodemus did not understand water baptism for Christians? That's hard to believe. Simply because water baptism for Christians had not been initiated yet in the New Testament or in the life of Christ. And it certainly was not a part of salvation for the nation of Israel. 
That's just one of the comments we would make in reply to the end-all verse that the Roman Catholic apologists would use to prove that baptism contains all of this. So, Tim, we have in front of us probably the foundation of the Roman Catholic religion when it comes to all that has been said of baptism. What say you in light of history and Roman Catholic hermeneutic at this point? Well, it, it is interesting when you study the ancient writers on baptism. <clears throat> so many times the Roman Catholic apologist and historian will appeal to the early church fathers and, uh, and try to extract evidence for baptismal regeneration. And in one case I can think of uh, offhand is there's a, a, a parable about the prodigal son and there's an ancient writer who calls uh, the robe that is placed on the prodigal when he comes back repentant. Uh, he calls it, he re refers to it as baptism, the robe of immortality. And so the Roman Catholic apologist will take that to refer to, oh, baptism is how he gets eternal life. What's important to understand, though, is that the early church writer, and he, his name escapes me at the moment, but I do know that the, the parable, in the parable, the robe is placed on the son after he has been found alive. <laughs> okay, he was dead, and now he's alive. Mm -hmm. And so clearly, he did not have the robe placed on him while he was dead, and that brought him to life. But it's important to understand the mindset of the Roman Catholic who wants to find baptismal regeneration in every reference to water or any reference to regeneration in the, the ancient writers. In another case, um, uh, the, the, par the story where uh, Jesus rubs uh, mud on the eyes of uh, a blind man and then sends him to the pool of... Uh, was it the pool of Siloam? To wash it off. And he says, see, God, it was through the waters that the Lord restored the eyes, the organs of sight in the blind man. Therefore, uh, baptismal regeneration. When you go, and in fact, the early writer had actually been referring to baptism. and saying, well, it's, it's a picture of baptism. But when you read the writer, the early writer, he says that the organs had been restored by the mud. Mm -hmm. And then... Water was applied to wash off the mud because the organs had been restored. Good. In other words, the water hadn't restored the organs, the Good. mud had, therefore it, again, doesn't work for baptismal regeneration. What I think is probably the strongest case that Roman Catholic apologists will make for baptismal regeneration is uh, Hippolytus and the Discourse on the Holy Theophany. Uh, Hippolytus was a disciple of Irenaeus and he would have written the Discourse on the Holy Theophany sometime in the early 300s. Uh, I'm sorry, early 200s, and because uh, Irenaeus was writing his uh, against heresies uh, about 189, 190 A.D., and so around 215, 235, Hippolytus, Irenaeus' disciple, is writing the Discourse on the Holy Theophany. And in that Discourse on the Holy Theophany, he's actually expounding the passage of Scripture where the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism. And he says explicitly throughout his discourse that uh, baptism takes, uh, uh, opens up heavens, opens up the heavens, it's the gate to the heavens, it is uh, 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 what, what better way to, uh, for sins to be taken away than through baptism, and he goes on and on and on, okay? Now, and, and, and he says it as clear as the day is long, he's saying this, and this is around one, uh, 235 uh, A.D., 
But if you go back to the very beginning of the discourse, he says, don't take me literally, I'm applying this figuratively. He says it from the beginning, the very first chapter. He says, I'm being figurative here. And then as you continue reading, you realize that for Hippolytus, he viewed Jesus' baptism as a figure for the crucifixion. <laughs> and so by the time you're finished with uh, Hippolytus and the Discourse on the Holy Theophany and some other fragment, fragments we have from Hippolytus, he saw Jesus' baptism in the Jordan as a prefiguration of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. And guess what the cross does? Takes away sins, opens up heaven's gate to us. And so when he refers to the water in the Discourse of the Holy the uh, on the Holy Theophany, the water from heaven coming down and providing all these benefits. Jesus is the water. The baptism of, uh, that Jesus underwent in the Jordan was a figure for the crucifixion. And the crucifixion takes away our sins, takes away our sins and opens up heaven's uh, doors to us. Mm -hmm. In fact, in another fragment, um, the, the robe that Jesus is wearing at his baptism was a figure for the nations that Jesus uh, rescued uh, through his death on the cross. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just very interesting. If you read uh, Hippolytus in the Discourse on the Holy Theophany and you take it out of its context and, ig and ignore his own admonition that he's writing figuratively and then ignore the broader context of Hippolytus' writings in which it's very, very clear that he saw Jesus' baptism as a figure for the cross, Sure, you get baptismal regeneration out of, out of Hippolytus, but only if you decontextualize it and, right. and ignore what he plainly said. I'm not talking about baptismal regeneration. There's a lot of, a lot of other references uh, we could cite, but I think that what you're looking for is just something that's illustrative of the desire of the Roman Catholic to find something to prove that the early church believed what Roman Catholicism believes now. But the early church did not believe in baptismal regeneration. That was a good history lesson, uh, and you're totally correct. Now, Rob mentioned something like there's several interpretations out there. Now, this is my reference Bible. I bought this thing in 1982, a year after I got saved. But uh, it's falling apart now on me. So when I was looking up the reference from John 5 you were giving, <laughs> this is John 5 here. I was looking at my notes. So I've spent uh, decades and decades dealing with false prophets, right, on mm -hmm. all fronts. Anyway, I had some notes here about what you were bringing up about the water mm -hmm. yeah. in, uh, in John chapter 5. And I'll just read. John chapter 5, are you in? Yeah, or, John chapter. Or 3. Five. Oh, I'm sorry. John chapter 3, verse, verse 5. five. Yeah, verse right. 5. Sorry about right. that. Yeah. So uh, my notes here just read as in reference to the word water <clears throat> located there. And you said there are several ways it could be interpreted. Mm -hmm. But here's what I've got in my notes. Uh, I always put plenty of notes into my Bible, and that's why it's all falling apart, and I need a rubber band to hold it on, because I can't remember everything, so I just have my Bible remember it for me. So in this case, here what I have is water is a type or symbol of the Word of God. And you get a cross-reference from that from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, with James 1, 18, and 1 Peter 1, 23. Now the second reference here it could possibly mean would be also symbolic of natural birth of man, which you get a reference maybe of that in verse 6, in that very next verse. And then also could be symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And your reference there would be John chapter 7, verses 37 through 38, Isaiah 55, 11, 
Isaiah 12, 3, 35, 6, 44, 3, Ezekiel 36, 25, Jeremiah 2, 13, and Zechariah 14, 8, etc. So just there, and I'll leave it up to the people at home if they really want to do their study and research. I didn't write all those. I just put the references. Mm -hmm. But those are three possible interpretations of John chapter 3, verse 5, on what the word water means just from scriptural references. Yeah, so. yeah I agree. Um, if you're watching this video and you want to do some research, this is the time to do it. Because we're zeroing in on the word water and what water would be referred to when Jesus says one is born of the water and the spirit. And, and Larry has mentioned the possibility that Jesus is referring to natural birth when the water bursts. Some theologians take that position. Some theologians think that he's referencing back to John the Baptist and his baptisms because uh, earlier, uh, two chapters before, that's the discussion that John takes at the beginning of his gospel. Others think the water here is a reference to the Holy Spirit itself. He must be born of water that is the Spirit in the sense of water being a representation of the Spirit. And like you say, water here also could reference the Word of God, washed by the uh, Word of God in Ephesians chapter 5. There is a stronger possibility in my mind that the water here would refer to the kinds of washings that uh, are uh, typical in the nation of Israel for cleansing. And I think that references back to the Ezekiel passage, yes. being washed in pure water. So the Lord is definitely making a statement here about the uh, Spirit of God being the agent for the new birth. And it seems to me if he's talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who's ruler of the Jews, certainly Nicodemus would have understood the cleansing of the use of water in the Old Testament, but that's not enough. Even though you go through the cleansing process, even though you go through the oblations and the uh, cult of Israel in the Old Testament that's identified as water with cleansing, you must be born of the Spirit. So there, there are very good possibilities for the word water. What it doesn't say here speaks volumes. Jesus Christ does not answer Nicodemus and say, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of baptism and the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Baptism is nowhere mentioned in the context. It has to be imported. But now that they have imported it, look what the implication is here. Could I remind you that there is no mention of incorporated into the church and made shares in her mission. There's no mention here of regeneration unless, unless you apply it to water. Unless you say water is baptism and baptism brings this about. But that's the Roman Catholic stretch trying to prove something that they already believe, but it's not in the text. So this is the kind of thing, Larry, that we're dealing with when we're dealing with Patrick Madrid, because there'll be other passages that he would summon 
to reinforce his position. So in our book, we've decided to take each passage, one passage at a time, and uh, that he would identify as proof of his position and show that it doesn't prove what he wants it to prove. And this is the story of his book. And uh, as far as being born again and being incorporated into Christ and being regenerated and, and all of that goes with it and uh, uh, being bound to the sacrament of baptism uh, is concerned, there are passages after passages after passages that tell us precisely what it means to be born from above and on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ we find that regeneration precedes that faith because you have to be born of the Spirit first. We find that it's all through faith and faith alone and that regeneration is of God and it has nothing to do with water. And if you go through the historical accounts of baptism in the New Testament and the movement of the Spirit, you'll find at times yeah, you've got regeneration without water. In fact, that's the reference I was going to go to next yeah. in Acts chapter 10. That's one of my favorite when I'm dealing yeah. with a baptismal yeah. regenerationist. Yeah. I just I show them, and I'll just read it for the folks at home. Uh, Acts 10, 44 and following. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter... Because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these shall not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days so, so the water doesn't bring about exactly it's the, the supernatural act of the holy spirit exactly so so if if baptism performed at the hands of a priest in the roman catholic religion did all of the things that they say it did and does certainly there would be a biblical record of it mm -hmm. and that would be the main thrust of the new testament but listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I thank God that I baptized none of you. How do you thank God that you don't baptize somebody if baptism brings about the rebirth? Right. right. And then he goes on to say that no one should say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. How can you lose count if baptism is regeneration, incorporation into Christ, mm -hmm. forgiveness of sin, the, the uh, plank, first plank of salvation, and necessary for salvation, right. the gateway to salvation? Right. Paul goes on to say, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Mm -hmm. Now, if you read, again, what I've read early on, Rome's position on baptism, Baptism is their gospel, but not for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So he contrasts the gospel of Jesus Christ with baptism, 
Whereas Rome says, baptism is the gospel, and it is the thing, the element, the event that brings about salvation, regeneration. Without baptism, you can't have it. The Apostle Paul says, well, that's interesting because Christ didn't send me to baptize. The very thing that you say brings about everything that you could hope for in eternal life, Christ told me not to do this. It does, so if you read these passages, they are astounding. So then those who had received his word were baptized. Once again, the reception of the word comes first. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, men and women alike. And Crispus, leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Christians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And Philip opened his mouth, beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him, and they went along the road, and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Belief precedes baptism. Right. Baptism doesn't bring about belief. So Rome's got it backwards completely, and as we move along yeah, through our wasn't, book... Yeah, wasn't the thief on the cross, didn't he, I mean, it just didn't mention it in the scripture, wasn't he baptized though while he was up on that cross? So he could get saved and go to par paradise with the Lord that same day? Mm, he had the baptism of intention. <laughs> According to Rome, he intended to be baptized, but he, oh, little, oh. he was a little hung up at the time. Oh. Oh, God. So, did I really say that? <laughs> yes, you did. So he actually couldn't escape his condition. <laughs> yeah. But I'm serious. Rome has the answer, and the answer is he intended to be baptized, and that's called oh. baptism of intention, okay. and that takes the place of water baptism. Now, what's interesting there is, and I was telling Tim about this uh, probably when we are coming from the airport, maybe last night, but... Uh, uh, a lady uh, came all the way from, and, you, and she wanted to see you too, because she watched our whole 16-hour series on Roman Catholicism uh, over in Paris, France, on YouTube, over there, because she could speak English as well as French. And she made a conversion and realized that Romanism was wrong, but she was trying to join the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Mm. when she's watching you and me yeah. on cable. And she's also watching some of Richard Bennett, also the former Roman Catholic priest on our channel. But uh, anyway, she, and it's all, we've got this on our YouTube channel. Just look, uh, uh, Camille Jolie uh, and her, she took a cargo uh, ship for like a month across the sea, maybe three weeks, uh, to get here to America, landed in Laporte, Texas, Got a got a, t a bus to bring her here to Austin, mm -hmm. and uh, to meet me. And then, of course, Richard Bennett. We both went to the same church. But uh, you were sick at the time. You were supposed to be there, right? And you got sick, and she didn't get to meet you. But uh, I talked to her in the stay in a few days, and we did some videos and everything. So we got her testimony, and she talks about how she was there in Paris, France, trying to get uh, become a member of the Roman Catholic Church. But they wouldn't let her because her parents were atheists, so she never got baptized as a baby. Mm. And, uh, and then she had to go through all this rigmarole because she wasn't baptized, and it was a big deal. 
uh, for her not being baptized. And she had to take these classes and all this stuff. But her intention was to get baptized. Right. But they wouldn't just let her get baptized. She had to do all this stuff. Yeah. I forget now, but it's in the videos. Anyone can watch those. Uh, so what happens to the argument you just gave me from them about intention? Here she is. She has the intention to get baptized, but they won't let her because she has to take, I don't know, parochial school classes or whatever it was she had to take. I think they would uh, qualify her as not having a bona fide intention because there is the possibility that she certainly can get baptized. So intention doesn't qualify if you can get baptized. It only qualifies if you can't. It's like the baptism of blood, the martyrs okay. who can't get baptized. So they'll have an excuse for that. Oh. But, but I thought it was interesting because her intention was yeah. to join the church and be baptized, yeah. but they wouldn't let her well, do if, it. If they're preventing her, then the intention is not valid. Uh -huh. But wow. it has to be an intention based upon the qualification that she is unable totally to mm -hmm. be baptized, such as a martyr, who, uh -huh. and they call it the baptism of blood. So, so that qualifies as well. And so if we tied her up and threatened to kill her or something, then if she couldn't get baptized, and then all of a sudden she can be qualified to be you would have baptism. To, you, you would have to kill her. Uh, because and and she would be a qualified baptized person because so you can't just you can't just say okay I want to be saved I want to be baptized I want to join the church no. but they won't they won't let that happen no it's, right away. it's really reserved for martyrs wow those so, who, those who want to but can't so you can't come freely no, to right. Christ in a situation like right. she was in right okay. so let's talk about control Tim what does it mean to the Catholic religion to insist upon infants being baptized as soon as possible in the Roman Catholic religion? Well, it's, uh, it's because the, the baby is born in sin and is, uh, is uh, spiritually dead and needs to be brought to life. So uh, the sooner you can baptize that baby, the sooner that baby is alive and uh, uh, in God's good graces until it can uh, come to the age of consent and make a decision on its own. But yeah, the urgency of baptizing a baby in Roman Catholicism is that uh, you've got to get that baby saved. Mm -hmm. yeah. And baptism does the trick. Baptism does the trick. And if you're holding the labor, who's got control? The man does. Yeah. The man does. Exactly. If the baby and dies before it can be baptized, does it go to limbo? So, it used to. So, so they okay, say, now you're saying used to. Did they change the rule? I think so. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, don't quote, well, I I'll, wrote just, that I'll just say I'm not exactly sure. Is there still a limbo? Uh, apparently it's never been officially, formally uh, promulgated as a doctrine of the church, just a hypothesis. Okay. That's it. But it's interesting because uh, if you go back to the early writers, and I'll just use Tertullian as an example because he has some of the most flowery language about baptism, uh, uh, the waters of baptism bringing eternal life and so forth. But uh, his language, of course, is metaphorical and over the top. Tertullian was like that. But what's most interesting about Tertullian is that he said that Christians should delay baptism as long as possible exactly. because it's such a... It's such a, a momentous event in the life of a Christian that's serious, there's no turning back. Mm -hmm. And if, if, uh, 
if they believed at that time the, in the urgency of baptism so you could be made alive in Christ, mm -hmm. then delaying baptism was uh, out of the question. Yeah. You'd want to get it done as soon as possible. Yes. <coughs> so because baptism, <coughs> excuse me, because baptism was a public profession of faith in Christ, mm -hmm. what should attend that baptism was the outward demonstration of, of a life of a Christian. Mm -hmm. And because it's such a big deal, Tertullian said that you should wait as long as possible because it's a big decision you're making. <laughs> so it's just so interesting that in yeah. a, at an age when uh, the, the Roman apologists would say, oh yeah, they've always taught infant baptism since the very beginning of the church mm -hmm. and baptismal regeneration. Why on earth would there be someone that was saying you should delay baptism as long as possible? And they would discount some of Tertullian's writings because some of them were from his heretical period, but that mm -hmm. one wasn't. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it also is shocking to hear that because uh, Tertullian should be a aware of these Bible verses we've just been talking about. These people, after they, in Peter's presence, the Holy Spirit, and then he says, who's preventing him from getting baptized? Right, got right, baptized right. right away. And of course I invoked Tertullian, not, not to illustrate why we should wait to be baptized, but rather <laughs> yeah. to illustrate that what he was saying does right. not comport right, with right, what right, Roman right, Catholicism right. says about I, baptism. I, that's I got your point exactly. I just kind of find it interesting how he can make a mistake like that. When the scriptures is so clear on this, but yeah. anyway, so uh, I want to make a comment uh, that uh, probably is uh, necessary at this point. There are a number of Protestant denominations that do practice infant baptism, and uh, I, I would I would say that uh, the practice of it is not directly taught in Scripture. They gather that it possibly could be taught in light of the household baptisms and the insistence that there must have been infants in the household baptisms, Philippian jailer, Lydia, so forth. But at the same time, there's not one Protestant baptism that I know of other than possibly Lutheranism that would impact baptism with this kind of language, saying that it regenerates an infant, makes the infant a Christian, makes the infant part of the body of Christ, mm -hmm. and, and all this language about if you refuse to, to have your infant baptized, then you, <coughs> you have prevented him from becoming a child of God, and that baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, gateway of life in the spirit. It, it, there's been a lot of blood shed over baptism in the body of Christ over the years for, for the difference. And, of course, if you go back and study the Reformation period that separated the first wave reformers from the second wave reformers over this whole issue of water baptism, particularly infants. But suffice to say, as a, as a qualifier, most Protestant <coughs> denominations who baptized infants would recoil at the significance given to baptism by the Roman Catholic religion. They'd run away from it. So I think that the first wave reformers actually kept the practice of paedo-baptism, infant practice, and they imported uh, different kinds of explanations as to why they do it. But uh, both the Roman Catholic religion and the uh, Protestant denominations who practice infant baptism rely upon the same biblical uh, passages for proof of the practice 
And uh, that must be said, because the, uh, the likes of John Calvin and others who practiced infant baptism relied upon those household baptisms uh, and insisted that they were for infants, although they'd never say, I don't think they would ever say, that uh, baptism sacrament of regeneration through the water. And <coughs> I have a quick question for you on this for viewers at home that may just be curious about this. Okay, so you're saying a Roman Catholic dogma doctrine, the baby is reborn when it's baptized. Right. It becomes a child of God. Right. Uh, and let's take a couple examples. Uh, Hitler was grown was born into a Roman Catholic family. Yeah. He was baptized as a baby. True. So was... Uh, some guy named Al Capone. Alphonse Capone, right. Baptized. Yeah. I just happen to have his, 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 uh, his graveyard pictures here. He's got crosses. and he's born, He was buried in a, a Roman Catholic cemetery. You can see pictures of Mary all over these other tombstones behind his family tombstone. He was just one buried there with some of his, his, his uh, relatives. But, uh, okay, so here you have Hitler and Al Capone, both Roman Catholics. And, uh, but since they're saying they got baptized as babies, so they're children of God. Now, is there anything, and I'm just talking about people that don't know, mm -hmm. that are watching right now. So, so they just go to heaven, right? It's because they were baptized as a baby. No. No. They are freed from original sin. They're made members of the body of Christ. They are reborn as sons of God. And uh, as the text says here, God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, so they are saved. But in the Roman Catholic religion, you can lose your salvation. Okay, you can you lose, can your, lose your salvation. Can you, you can lose your regeneration, and you can lose your justification as well. There is no security in the Roman Catholic religion. So Alphonse Capone was safe until he reached the age of accountability, and then all bets are off. Okay. And certainly he lived a life of sin, and as far as we know, there yeah, was... Yeah, but now let's no say he, when he was in prison dying of syphilis uh, in 1947, I think it was, but uh, he confesses his sins to a priest. Right. Would he be all right then? He would be. So he'd go to heaven? Yes. So, because uh, we know Hitler probably, just... Probably not heaven, probably purgatory. Oh, purgatory. There's no, there's no, well, unless they gave him some kind of penance that he could perform in prison. Okay, so if he never did that, then he would probably have some moral sins on his hands. Right. And, yeah. uh, of course, in Hitler's case... Unconfessed mortal sins mm -hmm. that have not been satisfied by personal penance qualify you for hell. When you say personal penance, he can just do that on his own, or does he need a priest to confess to? He needs somebody to tell him what to do, but it's his penance that he's doing. That's why it's personal. Ah, yes, yes. He yes. doesn't make it up. By the way, we have a video on this. Rob did a, did a great job on that, going through the Roman Catholic uh, catechisms and other doctrines. I think you mentioned Council of Trent also there, so they can check that. So when, when we begin to talk about salvation in the Roman Catholic religion and take a look at what Madrid has to say about salvation, yeah. we're going to see how difficult it is for him to affirm all these fantastic <clears throat> truths that occur in baptism and then can be denied and forfeited and walked away from and neutralized and made null and void by what a person does. Yeah. So they simply, they just simply have 
uh, a fantasy that baptism does all this because they say so. And they even say that God does it and God requires it. But man can undo it. And he can barely get it out of his pen to say that it's all undone by what man does. Because in Rome, salvation truly is of man, it's not of the Lord. But so, so the, the grip on this makes the Roman Catholic religion, sola ecclesia, a cradle-to-grave religion. And they live in this sacramental system their entire life, and they're never quite sure if they have denied their baptismal grace, their baptismal status, the fact that they are a, a child of God, regenerated, born, reborn, they're never quite sure if any of that is still sticking with them. And so that's, they live in fear, and the fear drives them back to the only place they know to have that fear taken care of, and that's the Roman Catholic religious authorities. Now, doesn't, when they go to the Mass, don't they get all their sins forgiven up to that point? Not all of them, only venial. Only the venial sins? Yeah, the smaller sins are forgiven when they take the, uh, the transubstantiated host. Aren't so you're saying not all venial, all venial sins are not mortal. They're no, they're venial. They're smaller. I think John Gerstner said they are mortal. They're lesser. But, but anyway, mortal, mortal, uh, a mortal sin kills the soul. Venial sins rupture it, but they can it can be so. Remedied. So basically, when they go to mass, they're actually making up for their venial sins, but not their mortal sins. Right. So. They go to a priest to confess those to get right. rid of those. That's exactly right. And do right. penance. That's right. So they can go to communion. But Sorry. most most Catholics, as we found in that video you did, 98% of them don't go to confession. Exactly. So that means 98% of Roman Catholics are going to hell anyway. Either that or 98% Catholics have never committed a mortal sin. And we have no infallible list of what sins are mortal and what sins are not. So you are essentially suspended. Seriously, you don't know. What, that's Rome. They don't, no they, don't, they don't want you to know. But it begins here. And I'll tell you, uh, Larry, when, when you look at baptism in the New Testament, you see a, a, a beautiful presentation of all those who believe were baptized, all those who believe were baptized, all those who believe were baptized, and, and what a wonderful moment it is in their life to be baptized because they believe, and then you, you bring this rubbish into it, this mm -hmm. sacramental salvation that is said to uh, be in the hands of a Roman Catholic priest. Uh, it, it really wears you out, and you realize that we're dealing with a mammoth religion that is hinged upon an absolutely faulty and bogus understanding. Let me ask Tim on this. You raised Roman Catholic, you're into the Marian stuff and all that. Did you have that fear he's talking about, the uncertainty of salvation as you were in the Roman Catholic religion? It, it's been a long time, and so I'm trying to reconstruct any thoughts I might have had. But, I mean, I, I went to confession. I knew about mortal sins and venial sins, um, but you know I, I would show up early to church to worship the Eucharist. I would pray to Mary and pray the Rosary, and so even through college, 
I was praying the rosary. Uh, so I always knew that because the rosary or saying Hail Marys could be prescribed as penance, uh, I was comfortable, you know, saying lots and lots of Hail Marys. Oh, goodness, I, I know <laughs> by Roman standards, I, I'm sure I, I committed lots and lots of mortal sins when I was in college. Um, it, to me, it wasn't so much the fear of um, losing my salvation. I, I believed that uh, I was in the right church doing all the right things and that uh, hopefully that was good enough. But I can't say that I felt like I lived in fear of, of my mortal sins or committing mortal sins. That, that really wasn't my experience as a Roman Catholic. My experience was more just as a, a devotee of the apparitions and the uh, transubstantiation and it so forth. It sounds like you just felt like, well, this should be good enough yeah, to get me I, in. The important thing in. was to be in the right religion, right, and then, right, right. then you're good from there. So, were you, Rob, were you the same way as that? Oh, my goodness. Um, we went to confession every Saturday. Oh, really? Every Saturday So afternoon. you were part of the 2%. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we were. I went to catechism on Monday night. Went to confession on Saturday, and um, did our penance was always in the form of saying the rosary, where you said so many. Our That's fathers, what Tim and, was yeah, saying. And, and, Hail Marys. And, and so many Hail Marys, and so you know, he would say, uh, you know, the the priest would listen to your sins. You'd recount your sins to the priest, and um, he would say something. Uh, blessed are you, Son, and for your penance, uh, ten Our Fathers and fifteen Hail Marys. So we'd have our rosary, and we would go back to the to the pew and sit down, and we would go bead by bead and repeat these mm. prayers. That, of course, as a as a as a kid, you know, as a ten, twelve year old kid, I don't know what's going on. So you're here. probably not too worried, just like Tim was saying, and you figure this is good enough. Well, you, you hope it's good enough. I mean, you don't think much about heaven and hell. You just think that this is what the guy wants me to do, and if I do this, I'm out of here. I'm good for another week, right? I mean, well, you're not a theologian. I was you're promised not. if I wore my scapular that uh, and I, I would a, be ushered into purgatory seven days after I died. So oh, we wow. out, uh, ushered out of purgatory yeah, seven days yeah, after I died. Cool. So, cool. so uh, yeah, I had a scapular that I wore, of course, uh, for protection. And uh, What about um, a miraculous medal? I didn't have a miraculous medal. We couldn't afford any medals. Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, but we did. I, I lit candles. You know, they had the, the candles, and you pray before the candles. They had a long stick, and you set it on fire to the tip of it, and light some other candles, and then blow it out. And you go through the stations of the cross every now and then. But mostly in catechism, you have no clue what's going on. And it was taught by a nun, and no way I could follow her, no way I could understand what she was saying. Would give us these little pamphlets, you're supposed to read them, but you can't understand. They weren't doing it in Latin back then, were they? Yeah, the mass was in Latin for me. It was in yeah, Latin. Yeah, see, I was, I was raised as a Novus Ordo, uh, Vatican II Catholic. Oh, so, so you didn't I have mean, to put and I, I remember hearing from my, uh, the, the, the youth lady that was in charge of the youth ministry at our church. Oh. I remember asking, it was a very frank conversation. Like, well, you know, who, d does anybody go to hell? And, and she said, well, only those who truly want to. <laughs> you know, that was, that was her answer because, you know, so, so I was raised in a different form of Roman Catholicism than uh, than. You Rob never bothered to try to learn Latin just to make up for being no, I, a new guy? No, I, I didn't learn Latin. So. Well, I, I asked Bob Sengenis in one of my debates with him uh, if, 
if I was going to go to hell? And he said, no, you're not going to go to hell. I said, why? I'm denying every single doctrine of the Roman Catholic religion. Up, down, backwards and forwards. I've denied everything you've asserted has to be true. And yet I still get to go to heaven? He said, yes, because you are invincibly ignorant. And the Lord will have mercy on the invincibly ignorant. In other words, you can't be convinced because you're incapable of being convinced. No, it's, it's worse so than that. You you're so ignorant, God himself can't convince you. That's what invincibly <laughs> ignorant. He, he himself can't he, overcome your ignorance. He can't. He can't. So all he can do is give you mercy. Yep. It's like so you're the, deaf, dumb, and blind, and God's not going to send you to help. I would have saved you if you had let me, and so I'm going to let you in. So, so this is extremely insightful for me. I know a ton of stuff, but for someone out there, probably impressed by this information you're giving. Right well, now. I'm telling you, you that don't usually hear this. If if you're going to uh, move against Rome and you're going to call them out on the carpet and deny all their doctrines, do it very well. Do it forcefully, do it cogently, do it from scripture, and you will eventually be on the road to heaven because you'll be invincibly ignorant. You'll be unconvertible. Hey, there you go. You're, you're home and, free. Both that's your, that's your that's ultimate Genesis. objective is to and be unconvertible. Yes. Yeah. Genesis salvation. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, well, let's get yeah, back to Madrid. A, let's yeah. get back to Madrid. Yeah, let's so. get back to Madrid. Okay. Um, I have some notes here that I want to share with you because... Madrid talks a lot about salvation, okay? So I brought some notes on Madrid and salvation. And I just want to, to, to uh, uh, quote him, if I could. We're not quoting him that much in this presentation, but I'll quote this. When asked the question, quote, If you died tonight, would you go to heaven? Madrid answers, If I die in a state of grace when I die, I will go to heaven, guaranteed. If the question is, what is the state of grace? Mm -hmm. That's the thing. What does it mean to die in a state of grace? Well, Madrid understands that living in a state of grace means, quote, obeying Christ's commands, avoiding sin, and clinging to Christ's grace for our salvation. The idea of being in a state of grace is synonymous with being saved in the Roman Catholic religion. They can say we are saved as long as we are in a state of grace. To be in a state of grace is to be saved. To fall from the state of grace is to lose salvation. Now, in this, in this note that is going to be is a part of the text of our book, I put, before analyzing the proof text for such a foundation of salvation, we must reiterate that the Roman Catholic religion is fond of inventing terms to define her doctrine, okay? She then searches the Bible for validation of her terms. We've seen this in the concepts of Roman Catholic purgatory. No such thing in scripture, no purgation, purgatory. Indulgences, the treasury of merit, the assumption of Mary, papal infallibility, just to name a few. In this section on salvation, we must note that the terms state of grace or mortal sin are Roman Catholic ideas. They are not biblical doctrine. Okay? It is just so key to say this because 
once you say, I'll go to heaven if I die in a state of grace, knowing that you could lose that state of grace, then you've, you've given up the ship as far as any security or any presumption of salvation that's true and meaningful. And that's what Madrid does. He quotes Romans chapter 11 in this section. And he says, Romans chapter 11, this means that those who receive the gift of salvation by grace through faith, the Roman Christians to whom St. Paul was writing, being a good example of this, are in a state of grace. But of course, they can choose to forfeit that gift of grace and lose their salvation. So Madrid is following the party line here. He is saying, if you follow the system, follow the rules, take care of yourself, be mindful of what Christ has asked you to do. And of course, the only way you can find out what Christ has asked you to do is to be in the system that Christ gave, which is sola ecclesia, uh, the church Seven alone. sacraments. Seven sacraments. Here, he, he moves on by saying, our faith in Christ is a gift, but yet it is we who must exercise that faith in order for it to be efficacious. So, faith is a gift, but it can sit in you forever. If you don't use it, it is no good to you. That's their definition of faith. Wow. You make it efficacious. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in your mind colliding with everything the Roman Catholic apologist is saying because Christians believe that grace is efficacious and it produces faith unalterably and there is no question about it. God's grace is efficacious. We don't make our faith efficacious. God's grace is efficacious that gives us faith that is efficacious. So he goes in another spot uh, where Madrid says, quote, we are the ones who have been able by his grace to have faith in him. It is something we do. We are the ones who have been able by his grace to have faith in him. It's something we do. And it is, in a very real sense, a work. Salvation by works. So the exercise of faith that we're responsible for is a work. Patrick Madrid, Roman Catholic apologist. Has he read Ephesians 2, 9 and 10? Yeah. So I've written uh, in response to this, how does one comprehend that grace and faith are gifts of God, yet totally dependent upon man's faithful use to be effective. What good's the gift? What is the gift? How is that a gift if it's totally dependent upon me to make it efficacious? In Rome, grace and faith are gifts from God, but only some will use them to gain a state of grace. Faith does nothing unless activated by man. Grace is impotent unless actuated by man. Faith is something we do, and it is a very sense of work. Truly, in Rome, salvation is of man. If man fails to perform, 
he is doomed to hell. It seems that salvation in Rome is principally accomplished by man. Faith is made effectual by man, is a work of man, but this is not all. There is much left to do in Rome to gain this state of grace. This is borne out as we look at what Madrid leaves out. Madrid, in his entire chapter on salvation, conveniently leaves out faithful attendance to all of the sacraments, mm -hmm. as well as effectually igniting or bringing to life faith and using it properly. He says nothing about baptism in his chapter on salvation. And you would think, Tim, that the one sacrament that brings about salvation would be brought up in a chapter on salvation. But Madrid doesn't even mention it. So when we, when we talk about salvation in the Roman Catholic religion, what can we safely say about it? There's nothing safe. There's uh, nothing safe. It's, it's, a, it's a bad road with a lot of hazards everywhere. Is it safe to say that there is such a thing as salvation? I mean, in our possession, if it's dependent upon us to activate it and to keep it, and we can lose it, and we can walk away from it? How will... So we can't possess eternal life if right. it's not eternal. Right. It's like uh, if you think about, if, let's just say that God is so gracious that he does the 99% and all that we have to do is our 1%. Yeah. That means our salvation is 100% dependent on our ability to do that 1%. It's still back to, uh, it's all on us. It and is. It's, it is back to God saying, I would have saved you if you would have let me. Which removes the sovereignty of God in salvation and, uh, and puts forward the sovereignty of man's will and man's, uh, uh, you know, man's intent. So God, it's basically, the gift is basically the ability for you to save yourself by doing that good work that Madrid is talking about there. And that gets us back to what you were mentioning about control, is that salvation can be withheld from somebody that God wanted to save if the priest does not give baptism properly. As we've seen in the news recently where there was a priest that had been saying the baptismal, um, uh, administering the baptismal sacrament incorrectly with the wrong words for decades, saying we baptize you instead of I baptize you. All those baptisms were declared to be null and void. And that means that for decades there were people that thought they were saved that weren't. Because right, okay, right. they've never been properly baptized because they never had the sacrament of salvation. And it all comes back to, and, and again, I mean, this is how, this is Madrid's religion and Madrid's belief and how he reflects it in this chapter on baptism is that baptism and faith are works that we have to do in order to get ourselves saved. And he says it's by God's grace that we can do it so cheaply. <laughs> right? But it's still 100% up to us. And it's just like it's 100% up to that priest administering the baptism properly yeah. for these people to get to heaven. Yeah. And it's 100% up to us to exercise the faith that's a gift. And if we don't exercise it, then God has done all He can to save us. It's not a gift. If, if you have to do something it. to earn it right. and achieve it. Yeah. It's, it would be like your father saying to you, I'd like to give you this gift for uh, $5,000. It's yours. It's free. I'm giving it to you. Go ahead. Put it in your account. 
And you go, my, what a wonderful gift. Thank you, Dad. It's fantastic. I'm going to put it in my account right now. So you go to the bank, you put it in your account, come home, and he says, okay, the door to the factory is right there. You start first thing in the morning. First thing in the morning. Well, why would I go into the factory? Well, because you have to activate that faith and you have to work it off. What do you think this is around here? It is a gift, to be sure. That's right. But you've got to activate it and you've got to get in there and work to maintain it. So there you go. Well, I don't want that kind of gift because I don't like factories. Too bad. That's what comes with the gift. You've got to, you've got to work it through. Now, given this, um, moving forward in his uh, chapter on salvation, considering our investigation into how Rome defines gift, grace, faith, salvation, we would find, I think, disingenuous this claim from Patrick Madrid, quote, he says the Catholic Church does not now teach nor has it ever taught a doctrine of salvation based upon works righteousness. Isn't he contradicting himself? He's contradicting his own religion and himself. You can't have it both ways. He you just can't said work earlier. You can't say that it is a work, essentially it is a work, but the Catholic Church does not now teach or never has taught a doctrine of salvation based upon works of righteousness. Well, the greatest work of righteousness you can do is activate your faith and maintain it. That's the greatest work of righteousness you can do. That's what ensures your salvation. So we'd say this is a little bit disingenuous. But furthermore, we would say, let's take a look at the Council of Trent. Because we're keeping in mind that though Patrick Madrid is a defender of the Roman Catholic religion and is a wildly successful and popular apologist for the Roman Catholic religion, he does not carry the authority of the Pope at Rome or the magisterium or uh, have the imprimatur as speaking out of the chair of Peter. Okay, so he's a man and he's speaking for Rome. So he says the Catholic Church is not now nor has it ever taught a doctrine of salvation based upon works righteousness. Let's see what the Council of Trent says. Quote, if anyone says that the good works of the one justified are in such manner the gifts of God that they are not also the good merits of him justified, or that the one justified by the good works that he performs by the grace of God and merit of Christ and whose living member he is, does not truly merit an increase of grace and eternal life, and in case he dies in grace, the attainment of eternal life itself, and also an increase of glory, let him be anathema. So Trent says, you're not allowed to deny that good works merit justification. You're not allowed to deny that good works that he performs by grace uh, of God and the merit of Jesus Christ does not truly merit an increase of grace and eternal life. You're not allowed to deny that. Not even you, Patrick Madrid, can deny that. And yet, Patrick does. And this is where we are talking about bringing both theology, the Bible, and history into play here. I don't know if uh, Madrid has ever read this quotation from the Council of Trent, but if he did, there's no way that he can incorporate it into a statement. The Catholic Church does not now, nor has it ever taught a doctrine of salvation based upon works righteousness. 
Works righteousness is good merits. Works righteousness is the merit or increase of grace in eternal life, and that's the report of the Council of Trent. So, Tim, we have once again an example of revision of history or ignorance of history or, or blind to it for your own purposes. Yeah, so in fact, that's the, that was the inspiration for the subtitle of the book, is that we do find, uh, say in the illustration I gave earlier of Luke, uh, Luke 10, 16, it's an abuse of scripture to try to make it say something that it doesn't say, but also uh, an abuse of history. Sometimes his ignorance of history is quite willful, yes. uh, because it, it, it would not be difficult for him to discover what these documents actually say, mm -hmm. or to discover the context of some of the things that he quotes. Um, so anyway, that, he left that to us. If, uh, if uh, he had done his job properly, we wouldn't have to have written the book. But, uh, so yeah, this is another example of that where he's, uh, he's twisting not only the scriptures, but also well, that, that the historical re record. That reminds me of Second Peter 3.16. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of those things, or of these things, which are some things hard to understand, they, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Resting the, the word of God to your own destruction. Twisting the word into something that's not saying. And I think that was tying into sort of what you were, you were saying there. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I just want to juxtapose two sentences of Madrid that are closely related in his chapter on salvation. I already quoted one of them. Let me say it again. According to Patrick Madrid, the Catholic Church does not now teach nor has ever taught a doctrine of salvation based upon works righteousness. Now we quote the Council of Trent which says just the opposite, but I want to take that passage the Catholic Church does not now nor has ever taught a doctrine of salvation based upon works righteousness. And then we come to another section in the same chapter where Madrid has this to say, quote, anyone who tells you that the central message of the gospel is justification by faith alone doesn't understand the central message of the gospel. I didn't know you didn't know that. But, but obviously, <laughs> if the Catholic Church doesn't teach a doctrine of salvation based upon works of righteousness, and it doesn't teach a doctrine of justification by faith alone, what does the Catholic Church base salvation on? It's not works of righteousness and it's not faith alone. So what is his answer? The answer is salvation and justification are based upon good works done in faith produced by God if man allows God to aid him through the Roman Catholic grace dispensing scheme of things. In short, Rome teaches that God through the death of Jesus Christ has left mankind a labyrinth or maze of religious obligations which if done appropriately will land the Roman Catholic in nothing less than purgatory where he will ultimately pay his last punishment for sin. So, for Madrid, it's not faith alone, and it's not works righteousness, it is the labyrinth, it's the maze. And this maze is given to us by God, and he also gives us 
faith, which if we exercise it properly through the maze, will land us in nothingness of purgatory. And if that isn't a man-made religion, I can't think of one. It's top of the line. It's first rate. Well, religion religion's created to have this church entity called the Roman Catholic Church in control of your life and of your destiny. Yeah. And it makes you a slave to that system, the, the, the Roman Catholic system of salvation. Yeah. And that's basically the answer to the question, because he's not here or there. Tim, do you, what do you want to say on that? Well, you know, it's an interesting... Um, it's an interesting conundrum that the Roman Catholic finds himself in, that uh, he, he can't know everything he needs to do to be saved, isn't even sure which councils he's supposed to adhere to, not even which paragraphs of which subsections of councils that he's supposed to adhere to. He sees the Pope issuing uh, motu proprios and other uh, documents from his um, from his office in the Vatican, and they're not sure which of those they ought to believe, which uh, footnotes of which ones they ought to believe. In fact, uh, Pope Francis issued one called Amoris Laetitia, and even now, conservative Roman Catholics uh, are uh, disagree with a, 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 not only the substance of the, the document itself, but also a footnote in which it is very strongly implied that divorced and remarried Catholics should be able to receive communion. And the reason this all matters is because now, because the Roman Catholic religion has placed, uh, requires of its sheep that they place all of their faith in the, the scriptures, the tradition, and the magisterium, they're left in a situation where they have to try to interpret the scriptures on their own uh, because there's only six or seven verses that have been infallibly interpreted for them. They have to figure out which councils are truly ecumenical and therefore are binding. Some aren't so sure about Vatican II. Some think that Sardica ought to be included in the list. Others believe that portions of other councils were, you know, some councils that, that began one year and ended another, only portions of that, uh, uh, only some years are actually ecumenical, other ones weren't. Some claimed to be ecumenical, later were turned out not to be ecumenical. And so they're in this situation now where they look at Francis and they're arguing amongst themselves, uh, is Francis a wicked pope issuing valid commands that must be obeyed? Or is he a good pope issuing bad commands and that don't need to be obeyed? Or, or you know, th there's all sorts of different iterations of these different, of the conundrum they face themselves, mm -hmm. that in which they, fa they find themselves. And the reason that's significant is because we were told that the reason that you need a pope is so that there is a, a teacher of the faithful so that people will have some confidence that what they're being taught is true. Mm -hmm. And so now you have Roman Catholics arguing, well, maybe Pope Francis isn't really the pope. Maybe Pope Benedict, when he resigned, his resignation was invalid. Uh, the, uh, or, or maybe there are no popes right now. Or maybe... Or maybe truly Francis is an anti-pope. And these are all the debates going on within Roman Catholicism. But what I hear consistently in all these different debates is the fear in each of them that they might accidentally be saying this pope is an anti-pope and later it turns out that he's not. Mm -hmm. or, or contrarily saying he is the pope and obeying what he taught and then finding out later that what he taught was, was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so 
What I find, and, and this, this happens occasionally as you listen to the Catholic blogosphere, uh, the person speaking says, you know, I, I'm just not sure, I'm not ready to make this uh, you know, pronouncement yet, say what I believe. One even said that it's ridiculous that you practically need a doctoral thesis in order to figure out what your church has taught in the various councils. It's like doing your taxes. And one even said that, he said, well, I don't know if what I'm saying is right or wrong, but, but, but I implicitly believe whatever the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And so uh, Rob talked about virtual intent. Mm -hmm. um, the, oh, I'm sorry, he talked about in, invincible ignorance. Right. There's another thing called virtual intent, that if you're wearing a scapular and, and you have bad motives, but you do something, you, you, uh, good motives are ascribed to it because you have virtual intent. The third funny word that they use is implicit faith. Mm -hmm. And that is, if you can't figure out what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but you express that you implicitly believe what it says is true, then you have faith in whatever it is that the Roman Catholic Church teaches, even though you don't know what that thing is. And, and this is the situation that Roman Catholics find themselves in. They have to rely on the implicit faith of trusting that I don't know what your church is teaching. I don't know if Pope Francis is the right pope, or Pope Benedict is the right pope, or if Francis is an anti-pope, or if he's a valid pope issuing wicked commands, or a wicked pope issuing invalid commands. But whatever the church teaches, that's what I believe. That's a religion of skeptics. Yep. That is not a religion of people who that's understand what Jesus said. That's a good way yeah, to put The religion it. that Jesus, he said, I gave you these things that you may have an understanding. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. And for all the divisions that exist within Protestantism, and, and um, uh, uh, Patrick Madrid, Madrid camps on this, he said, well, you know, uh, what other choice do I have? Should I become Protestant with their thousands of different denominations? Well, there are actually thousands of denominations within Roman Catholicism as well, and here's why. It's because this guy believes that these councils are ecumenical. This guy believes that these uh, papal statements were infallible. This guy believes that the popes should be preaching what the apparitions of Mary say. This guy says they shouldn't. This guy says that he understands this Bible verse. This guy says it hasn't been infallibly interpreted for you. And you take every one of those different differences that exist within Roman Catholicism, and each Roman Catholic who has custom-tailored his own version of Roman Catholicism and yeah. camped on that one, there are millions of denominations within Roman Catholicism because each one of them has constructed a Roman Catholicism of his own imagination. That's right. That's right. And so for the Roman Catholics say, well, at least we have unity. And I say, in what? You don't even know if you have the right pope. <laughs> For sure you don't know if you have the right ecumenical councils. For sure you don't know if you've interpreted a Bible verse properly. Patrick Madrid himself will, would acknowledge that he does not have the authority to interpret the Bible verses, and then he has the presumption to tell us what these Bible verses That's mean. Right. He says, well, Jesus meant this and Paul meant that. How do you know? That's not even one of the Bible verses that was infallibly interpreted by the church. So my point is, that Patrick Madrid has constructed a religion in which the only hope you have for salvation is to claim that you believe whatever it is the church teaches without the knowledge of what the teaching is. Yes. And that's a religion of skeptics. I just can't yes. know, can't understand, so my faith is in the church. Well, but, see, you put your point right there. My faith is in the church. That's right. Not Jesus. The religion that Patrick Madrid is ad advancing is one where the ultimate end is to place your unwavering trust in the church. That's it. The religion of Christianity is to look in the scriptures and find Christ and place your unwavering trust in him. And those are the two different religions That's we're right. talking about. So one trusts the church, the other trusts in the word of God, in Christ 
who is in the Word of God right. that's presented that's right. there. And, yeah. and that's a giant difference. Justification is by faith in the Word of God. That's what Abraham believed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and interpreting various kinds of things in the Scripture, I think Madrid could find a lot of followers in the Roman Catholic religion who agree with him. So we might call him Madridism, a subculture of Roman Catholicism, wherein he believes some of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic religion in the sense of uh, mainstream, transubstantiation. Yeah, all, pretty much all Roman Catholics believe in transubstantiation. Pretty much all Roman Catholics believe in baptismal regeneration. But as far as uh, interpreting other passages of Scripture, they can't. They can't. Oh, uh, I think you're being too generous. Uh, you, you listen to the Catholic blogosphere, and this group over here says that group doesn't really believe in the real presence of Christ because they don't, they don't believe in transubstantiation. I mean, you listen well, they to. They they don't really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You're, you listen to Church Militant or. Uh, or, or uh, Timothy Gordon, a Roman Catholic apologist, or Taylor Marshall, or Michael Voris, who started Church Militant, uh, they're all arguing amongst themselves about who actually has the truth and who should be saying the Pope is or isn't, a, uh, or Francis is or isn't a Pope. But I was listening one night uh, uh, to the Church Militant Evening News, and, and they just said on the news that this group of bishops over here, the U.S. Congress, uh, a Conference of Catholic Bishops, they don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Which is to say that the bishops of the U.S. don't believe in transubstantiation. So no, you can't say that all Roman Catholics obviously believe in transubstantiation. They don't even agree among themselves that all Roman Catholics Robert believe in it. actually did a video about <laughs> 10 years ago. On so we're not just, sure what they should believe in either, No, are we? No, nor, we, nor is there Pope. Right, and we did a video, you've probably forgotten now, it's about 10 years ago, it's on disunited Roman Catholic apologists. Right. They're fighting with each other, just like they you are. said. Yes. And uh, you've got Jerry Maddox, who just broke off from Christian, I mean, uh, Catholic he's a, answers. He's a set of acantis. Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah set of he, Yeah, he's a set of acantis. Yeah, he, he thinks uh, the seat is vacated because he doesn't accept the current pope and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah. I mean, it's a mess. That's up. right. That's right. The, the folks that believe that Pope Benedict's resignation was not valid are the Beneplenists, that he yeah. remains Pope, those who think that he, his, he, the resignation was invalid, but the election of Francis was invalid, or the Bennett Vacantists that say that the seat is vacant after him. The uh, folks that believe unwaveringly in Pope Francis I are called the Pope Splainers, who have to justify every single crazy thing he says. I mean, and then there's the left Cats, and then there's the, the, the Normies, and the Conservatives, and the Trads, the Rad Trads. I mean, there's all these different divisions within Roman Catholicism. They say, well, at least we're not as divided as the Protestants. But wait. Your standard was supposed to be that they may be one. Right. That was the prayer of, Je of Jesus yeah. in John 17. You no, can't just, use Protestants right. as your punching bag. You're I, so divided within yourselves, you have millions of denominations. Perfect, perfect point. Uh, I had a visual of you just now on your arguments for the last 10 minutes. Of you uh, having this big jigsaw puzzle of the Roman Catholic religion. And as you talked about all the differences and everything, you're pulling that jigsaw puzzle apart until... There's like a million differences. Yes. And it's yes. all over the table instead of all one. That's right. And all these different opinions about who's the Pope and what the Pope has said, how many infallible statements he's made, which things you have to believe, which, which councils are ecumenical, and I say, 
So that's the rock on which Christ built his church. Uh, <laughs> mm. so how's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? And you know, here's the thing, is that yes, Protestants are divided into lots and lots of different denominations. We don't deny it. But at least we don't get huddled together and argue amongst ourselves about whether Jesus is a wicked shepherd issuing valid commands or a, a, a good shepherd issuing bad commands. And we also understand... Our shepherd is one. Right. And we also understand no matter what, Jesus said there's going to be wheat and tares in the church. And, and that's going to be all the way to the end until he comes yeah. back. So that's why you have a lot of messed up denominations and, and liberalism and all this stuff. But wheat and tares are going to be there, but the, the, the true body of believers is always there. And they're united around, of course, uh, Rob's Bible's better in shape than mine, but yeah. they're united with the Word of God, yeah. wherever it, they may be in the world. It's, it's very interesting because you're talking about the visible and the invisible church. Exactly. It's very funny, exactly. it, uh, funny in, a, in a wry and ironic sense is that I listen, as I listen to the circular firing squad that Roman Catholicism currently is, uh, they're coming very, very close to saying things like an invisible church mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. some of them just can't imagine that the current <laughs> occupant of the Vatican is truly the right. rock on which Christ built his church. And therefore, there must be this body of believers who are truly faithful, but they just can't identify them right now. They're yeah. coming. I, I've even heard them almost say invisible and then stop right. themselves because right. they know that that's the Protestant heresy. So, right. Right. But anyway, right. that's, uh, I digress. Uh, we can pick up on some of what Madrid says about the papacy yeah. uh, a little bit later. But Yeah, no, we did a video called 46 Bad Popes. So when we yeah. talk about Francis, he had a lot of bad company <laughs> over the yeah. centuries. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, when you look at that, documentation from the Roman Catholic Church itself on all these popes like Honorius, you know, who they dug up and condemned him as a heretic and everything they else. They were exonerated. He kept going back and forth. From heaven, <laughs> heaven to hell, so. See, they can't even get that right. But yeah. anyway, go ahead. Yeah, it, as, a, as a transition from the previous conversation, I thought it would be good for me to just visit a few of the points that Patrick Madrid makes in his book about the papacy, the true church, and about Mary. And uh, this video is not going to be the opportunity to go through point by point everything he says, but it's probably worth giving a sampling of how we interact with Patrick Madrid through the book. Um, on the papacy, Patrick Madrid talks about just one illustration he gives, and there are very, very many, and this certainly isn't the full scope of Madrid's argument. But he talks about how the fact that uh, there was a bishop of Rome in the first century, his name was Clement, and the church at Corinth had a schism going on about the election of some presbyters and they wrote to the church at Rome asking for some advice on how to handle it. And Clement of Rome wrote back and gave some advice and said that uh, they, they should stop being divided and uh, should, uh, should be more united and in fact said that they should do whatever the majority had decided. It had to do with the election of some presbyters and some of the presbyters had been excused from their office uh, uh, invalidly. They had not done anything wrong. And so Patrick Madrid takes that to mean that, well, if the church at Corinth was writing letters to the church at Rome for advice and the church of Rome was writing back giving advice, that it must mean because the church at Rome was in charge of the church even in the first century. That is, they had a pope and he was the chief shepherd of the church. And it's such an interesting 
but uh, worn out trope from the Roman Catholic apologist. I've just heard it so many times. Well, if Clement of Rome was writing to Corinth and Corinth was writing to Clement of Rome asking for advice and Clement was writing back, then surely Clement must have realized that he was the chief shepherd of the church. But to say that reflects such a gross ignorance of church history that I'm just simply surprised that someone of Patrick Madrid's stature would make the argument. And what I mean is, the churches of that day wrote to each other all the time about everything. They're writing letters back and forth, opinions about what someone said here, what someone said there, some troubles they're having at their congregation, and troubles that they're hearing about in other congregations. If the exchange between Corinth and uh, Rome is evidence that Clement was the Pope of, the, of Christianity in the first century, then what are we to make about the letter from the Philippians to Polycarp asking for advice? Because Polycarp was uh, responding to them, saying, I'm, I'm answering some questions because you asked me to weigh in. Was Polycarp the Pope of the Philippians? And uh, perhaps a more dramatic example, there was a schism at Rome in the time of Cyprian of Carthage around the 250s AD, and uh, both warring parties in Carthage, I'm uh, sorry, both warring parties in Rome wrote to Cyprian about the problem and the schism that they were encountering. Cyprian wrote back to each of them and insisted that each of them write back to him to inform them of his progress. And then when they were united again and both parties had written back to, to, to Cyprian and said, thank you for intervening, we're so thankful that you, uh, you rose to the occasion and we're back together again as one church in Rome. Uh, Cyprian then wrote to the church at Rome, wrote to the bishop and said, you need to read my letters to your congregation in order to, pre uh, to, to preclude and basically inoculate them against any other strain of heresy that might exist. My point is that the churches wrote to each other all the time. And yes, Corinth wrote to Clement, Philippi wrote to Polycarp, and the church at Rome wrote to Carthage, wrote to Cyprian of Carthage asking for his help in each case addressing something that they needed help with. The churches encouraged one another and the exchange of letters that took place between the churches in those days is a reflection of the collegial fraternity that they enjoyed together, sharing each other's joys, uh, sharing each other's sorrows, asking for prayers, asking for advice, and commenting on each other's opinions. In fact, earlier when I read from Dionysus of Alexandria to St Stephen at Rome, he was writing to correct him. And what you said was incorrect. And so, uh, the exchange of letters between churches is hardly evidence that any one of them was Pope unless it's evidence that they all were Pope. Because Patrick Madrid has taken one slice from history in the first century and camped on it as evidence that the Pope, the, the, the Bishop of Rome was Pope over all the churches as early as the first century. Completely leaving out the fact that the churches wrote to each other all the time by staying in contact by exchange of letters and further that they wrote to each other for advice. And what is more, even the church at Rome wrote to another bishop somewhere else asking what to do, asking some, for some advice on how to heal their schism. And then Cyprian, of course, wrote back and insisted that his letters be read in the church at Rome. Uh, Patrick Madrid camps on the fact that the advice that Clement gave to Corinth was earnest to the point of being forceful, and yet Cyprian of Carthage was just as earnest and even more forceful in his interaction with the church at Rome, addressing the, uh, the schism that had erupted there. So my point is that Patrick Madrid makes cases and arguments for certain things 
we have to go back and look at the context in which the letter was written, the broader context of how the church communicated, and the broader context beyond that about how they interacted with each other, and by no means was the Bishop of Rome assumed to be the chief shepherd who could not be corrected by the others. In fact, um, Cyprian of Carthage uh, wrote to the, to the Bishop of Rome uh, many times complaining about uh, the ridiculous teachings that were emanating there and how much he disagreed with them. Another argument that Patrick Madrid makes is that uh, it's, it's an argument that is directed toward the Eastern Orthodox, uh, but it's relevant to us as Protestants because uh, the, it's the same lesson that he would have them learn, as, uh, the, have us learn as he would teach the Easterns. And he said that uh, the, the, the sine qua non of church membership in the early church was communion with the Bishop of Rome. And he said all the Eastern Fathers believed it. Uh, but it's a ridiculous statement to make because uh, Fermilion of Caesarea disagreed with Pope Stephen of Rome and agreed with what Cyprian of Carthage was saying about him. Uh, when Pope Victor of Rome uh, tried to impose uh, the, on the church that everybody celebrate Easter on the same day, uh, Polycrates of Ephesus said uh, not only could Pope Victor go pound sand, but he had a whole, uh, all the bishops of Asia Minor were, were in agreement with him that they did not need to do what the Bishop of Rome said. And said in fact, he wrote, he, he wrote back and said, uh, it is better for us to obey God than to obey man, the very words that Peter had actually used in the book of Acts. So uh, when you look at uh, Victor uh, trying to impose the date of Easter and the Asian bishops responding, saying absolutely not, you see Pope Stephen trying to talk about how the baptism of a, a heretical baptism could be considered valid. You have Fermilion of Caesarea responding and, uh, and rejecting his teaching. And uh, what we find in the history of the exchange of letters uh, in the early writers is that by no means was the Bishop of Rome considered to be the chief shepherd. The Easterns did not believe that they had to be in communion with him in order to be uh, uh, members of the church in good standing. And uh, there were many times when the church at Rome was actually writing to others for advice and getting advice from others. So I would just say that Patrick Madrid is extremely selective in his use of evidence from the early centuries to prove something that is actually not true, that the Bishop of Rome was the chief shepherd of the early church. So uh, I, I want to just move on from there and just address one thing about uh, Mary. In his chapter on Mary, uh, Patrick Madrid uses a lot of different arguments. Uh, some of them are the same old tired arguments that we've heard. There was one in particular that I wanted to address, and that is his expression, his, his belief that the early church embraced the title of Mary as Mother of God. It's uh, a, a title that Protestants generally disagree with, although I'll say that uh, some of the reformers embraced the title. And uh, I have the same thing to say to them as I do to Patrick Madrid. Is it's absolutely ridiculous to think that the early church embraced the title of Theotokos as meaning Mother of God. The first recorded incident of the use of the word Theotokos in church history was by Alexander of Alexandria writing to Alexander of Constantinople. And it was about 324 AD, just before the Council of Nicaea. And in that letter, from Alexander of Alexandria, he used the word Theotokos in reference to the fact that Jesus had received his body from Mary. 
In the same paragraph, he refers to Jesus' divine origination from his father and uses the term theogonius, which literally translates as divine generation. So the first time we ever hear the word theotokos used in the early writers, it is used to distinguish Jesus' human generation from his divine generation. And because the word theogonius, which means divine generation, Jesus' theogonius from his father is distinguished from his, the generation of his body by his mother, Mary, we have the first actual use of Theotokos being taken in the context in which it cannot refer to Jesus' divine generation. In fact, it's used to counter-distinguish his human generation from his divine generation. And that's why in the early church, it was very common to say, insofar as Jesus was God, he had no mother. Insofar as he was man, he had no father. The early church was very, very plainly spoken about the fact that Jesus' divine generation was from his father and that his human generation was from his mother and his body had been provided by Mary but not his divine origins. And that's why it's, it's, it's so remarkable that eventually Theotokos got taken to mean mother of God or uh, De genitrix, which is the, the Latin for the, the, gener the, 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 um, the, the parent of God or the, the generator of God. And then they would say that, well, Mary gave birth to God and therefore she's de genitrix, uh, genitrix or she's the mother of God, uh, mater dei, which is the Latin, Latin terms for mother of God. So, and yet that's the Latin translation of a Greek term, theotokos, that literally just means bearer of God. That is, that Mary truly did bear God in her womb. But Theotokos cannot be taken to mean mother of God because the first time it was ever used was to distinguish between his human generation and his divine generation. And so it's, it's just fascinating that the first time we ever see the words de genitrix or mater de originate at all in the West is at the end of the fourth century. After centuries of, of church fathers being willing to say that insofar as Jesus is God, he has no mother. So how on earth do you get mother of God out of that? So that's just one example I wanted to focus on. And then, then the last uh, is when, when Patrick Madrid was trying to talk about the uh, antiquity of the church. And I made reference to this earlier in, in our video on the Eucharist. He talked about that if you, know, you go back 500 years and you have the same Eucharist being celebrated by the Roman Catholic religion. Go back another 500 and you have the same uh, Eucharist being celebrated. Go back another 500 and it's the same Eucharist. And yet if you just examine the history on these, you find that at each stage that he thinks he's found an identical Eucharist, there are actually differences that have actually occurred. Uh, now Roman Catholics go and receive the Eucharist and they hear that uh, uh, Protestants are their separated brethren. 500 years ago, Protestants were being burned alive for not bowing to the, uh, uh, to the consecrated wafer go back another 500 years and they were still administering the Lord's Supper under both elements of uh, bread and wine and, and uh, go back before that and they're offering uh, pomegranates and oil and cheese with their Eucharist because it was the tithe offering. And it's just important for us to, as, as we explore the claims that Patrick Madrid makes, they do not withstand even a simple scrutiny. As you go back and look and find that, well sure Clement wrote uh, back to the Corinthians, and, but 
but Polycarp wrote back to the Philippians, and Philippians wrote back to the Romans. Um, sure, the church did use the word Theotokos before Nicaea even, but it was plain from the usage of the term that it was intended to distinguish from Jesus' divine generation, not to be used as a term to reflect Jesus' divine generation. So, uh, as you read through uh, what Patrick Madrid says, if you're uh, interested in looking at his book, and if you read through uh, our book, which is a gospel contrary, it's a response to Patrick Madrid, it's important to remember that the obligation of uh, the critic of Patrick Madrid is to examine what he is claiming. And as Rob was demonstrating earlier, and as I've just demonstrated here, when you examine his claims in the light of the historical record and in the light of scriptures, uh, Patrick Madrid is weighed in the balance and found wanting. Uh, he does not make the case, and as we mentioned at the very, very beginning of this, he often reflects what he wishes history had said, but can't prove it. Because the further, closer you get to the apostles, the farther you get from Roman Catholicism. And yet, the whole substance of his argument is that Roman Catholicism came from the apostles. But they're on divergent paths. The religion of Christianity originated with the apostles. The religion of Rome originated as a novelty many, many centuries later. So. Excellent, excellent summation on that. Uh, Rob, did you have any quick words to add to that? No, other than the fact that the uh, inundation of the assumption of Rome has uh, been so well publicized and the nation has been so well propagandized by Rome that uh, they named their buildings, they named their high schools, and they named their auditoriums, and they named their uh, shrines after their assumptions. Everybody knows modern day, modern day high school because they produce some of the best basketball players on the East Coast. What does modern day mean? Mother of God. Mother of God. Taken for granted. Yeah. Inundation. Propagandized. Yeah. So this is the battle that we're, we're taking. I don't know how many parents would send their child to a Roman Catholic high school named Modern Day, Mother of God, and ask the question, what does that mean? Well, what does Notre Dame mean? <laughs> it's Our Lady. It's named after the apparition. Yeah. <laughs> so there you, I mean. Yeah, Notre Dame is named after the apparition of Mary. You're absolutely right. So um, this is the battle we're taking on because it's, uh, it's a populist battle as well. People mm -hmm. have these names and have these places memorized and they have shrines that they attend. And it's all based upon a lie. Yeah, yeah. All based upon right. a lie. We're, we're in Texas, uh, where Corpus Christi is located. Corpus Christi is Latin for the yeah, body yeah. of Christ. Body it's of intended Christ. to reflect the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Right. Well, uh, gentlemen, that was just an extraordinary session we've had on the contents of your book and dealing with the arguments given by Patrick Madrid in his book. What was the name of his book again? Answer Me This. Answer Me This, but he doesn't sound like he gave very good answers. You all had too easy of a time dealing with his Well, he said, answer answers. me this, so we are. <laughs> yeah, we answered him that. Right. We so, answered him that. Right. So I want to mention to our, our YouTube viewers that uh, if, uh, if you want to see something that's really amazing, and, and it kind of goes in with what uh, Tim was saying a minute ago about the papacy, uh, I put up a short version of the Boston College debate 
between James White and Rob Zins. Those two were together against Bob Sengenis and Scott Butler. Right. And I put your closing comments in one short video, just James White followed right by Rob Zins, destroying the historicity of the papacy. And it really ties in nice. I was thinking of that while Tim was talking and <laughs> giving all this information that was historical. Uh, I said that, would, that really segues great into that particular debate. So check that out. Of course, we do have a playlist on Roman Catholicism with 218 videos we've done over the last 30-something years so far now. And uh, it's filled with debates. Your debate with the Mon Junior, I mean the Mon, Mon Senior. Mon Senior. <laughs> I can't help. Uh, we always call them that. But uh, anyway, uh, if you have more questions about uh, Mary and these things that uh, we've talked about here in this video series, uh, just check it on that, that uh, playlist with 218. We got lots of videos refuting the doctrine of Mary as well, and so forth, and other stuff that we that, that they brought up here. So anyway, thanks again, brothers, for this outstanding presentation. I really enjoyed it. Rob Yes. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate the invite. I loved it. It was fun. And don't forget, we're talking about their book, A Gospel Contrary, first edition, a study of Roman Catholic abuse, and that's really the case, abuse of history and scripture to propagate error by Kaufman over there and Zins right here. And uh, I'm Larry Wessels, Director of Christian Answers. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I thank the Lord that he allowed us to do this in his providence. So I'm always grateful, uh, and I give the Lord the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. So, <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Amen. So just remember this, John 14:6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me, and that's not the Roman Catholic Church, it's not the Mormon Church, that's not the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, or Seventh-day Adventism, or any of these. It's Jesus. It's the Jesus of the Bible and the Word of God. That's what you need in faith alone in that Jesus. Well, with that said, God bless you all. Thank you for being with us, and we'll see you again next time. God bless. God bless. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.